you have, have ever played sports before. Um, but uh, I was a quarterback in high school and college. Really high school, let's be honest. <laughs> I was a holder in college, you know what I'm saying? Are you, are you laughing at the fact I was a holder? It's a very distinguished position. But there, there is this, um, there's this moment, if you've ever been, um, if you've ever played sports, when you're in the locker room, and, uh, you know, everyone's kind of looking around at each other, and, uh, you know, there, then there's this moment where the coach gives this, you know, this speech, and my coaches in high school were crazy. I mean, they were breaking windows. I mean, it was, seriously, it was wild. And, uh, and, you know, and everyone just, anyway. But then there's this moment where, like, everyone comes together, and there's just this, there's this like, there's this break, and, and it's go time. You know what I mean? I kind of feel like this is one of those moments. Like, we saw, you know, like, it's go time. Because what's about to happen tonight is there is a, a couple mysteries that I feel like have, have always just evaded my mind and my heart through my Christian journey. And in preparing for this passage tonight, I feel like two of those mysteries have just like revealed themselves. And so last week we took this journey about um, asking questions of who Jesus was. Really? Is there any better place that we could spend our time? than just asking, hey, Jesus, would you teach us more about yourself? Because we believe you're the crux of everything, so just, just feed us. Uh, I hope that you're in for the journey for the long haul. Like, it, it wasn't some weak deal, right? My question list is up to 67. I've answered eight of them, right? So, I mean, it's going to be a long, long journey. So I hope you're with me. But tonight, uh, these two things. So I'll give you a little sneak peek, and then we'll get in the scripture. Sound good? This is like a movie uh, preview right here, right? Uh, what, what was the best excuse, this is a rhetorical question, by the way, what was the best excuse you ever used uh, when, your, when your homework was late, right? You guys remember that, those days? Like, what, what absolute best excuse? Like, what, what, what did you have, right? And now, nowadays, and, and this is classic, right? You, sh- you show up to your teacher, and this applies mostly to your college students now. You're like, um, my, the, the printer ink, it's just, it's all gone, you know? Crazy thing, just the ink is gone it's over, and then your teacher's like, so did you print it out in blue or something? Yeah, crazy thing. The color ink, all of it except like transparent was gone, just empty, you know, and then, then, your, then your teacher's like, oh, well, that's cool. Did you email it to yourself so that you could just print it off of one of the, the computers? Yeah, crazy thing. Computer just crashed, you know what I mean? There was a bird flying, you know what I mean? It just it's just over, right? I mean, just, just, just stupid, stupid stuff. And you're teaching the whole time just, you know, what's your best excuse for being late? Come on, you've come up with some good ones, right? You're supposed to meet somebody at the Crooked Tree. Any Crooked Tree fans here? Love Crooked Tree. Um, I don't really especially love the smell that it puts on my clothes after I leave. Have you guys noticed this? I walk in the house sometimes and Heidi's like, have you been at the Crooked Tree? I'm like, yes, I have, you know, good guess. So you, you call up your friend and you're like, hey, uh, stuck in traffic here on Main Street, St. Charles. Yeah, you know, uh, 64, they shut it down. They're just backing up all the way back here in, six, you know, St. Charles. Not really sure. The whole time, you're just, it's just stupid. Does anyone else just despise excuses? Listen, if there's anything that I despise, it's an excuse. Because here's the reason. An excuse really is a mask for pride and laziness. And and we're going to dig more into excuses tonight. But listen, church, it's time that we rid ourselves of excuses. And we're going to get to the root of it, and we're going to see the answer for it. But I hope you're ready to go there. 
Second thing, a lot of people have asked me through my Christian experience, so how's your relationship with God going? Anyone ever been asked that question, right? For me, it's, pro- I mean, it's in the thousands. And it's, it's, it's one of those weird things because relationship with God, it's just strange because you're trying to figure out like what that is. And unfortunately, we live in a culture that has made like Jesus our boyfriend. You know what I mean? So it's like, I don't know, we're, we're close. You know, we talk sometimes. But I, we just don't have a good working definition of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. And let me tell you something, in the moment that we thrust our human expectations on that relationship is a dangerous, dangerous moment tonight through this passage of 1 John chapter 2, which, by the way, you can pull out your pew Bible now and begin to open it. It's right in front of you. Through this journey tonight, we are going to walk away with an understanding of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus, biblically, not Christian hearsay. Anyone tired of Christian hearsay? I'm tired of it. I despise it. I want to know what the scripture says, and tonight we will discover it. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. You guys all there? Say, I'm there. It's going to be a good night. Here we go. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. The word abide in the Greek is this strange Greek word called meno. 112 times in the New Testament, meno is used. 66 in the John writings. So clearly, quick math, John loved this word abide. We've already seen it a lot in 1 John, haven't we? And we've defined it as to remain in or to stay connected. He's, he's used another word, right, a koinonia, like fellowship, to remain in. He says this at the beginning, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. So what is he talking about here? What you have heard from the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 7, he said the difference between the old and the new commandment. And the commandment, what you have heard from the beginning, John is saying, is what I have communicated to you, churches in Asia Minor, about what the gospel is. John went and he preached and other apostles that he trusted, and they told the churches in Asia Minor who Jesus was. And he's saying, abide in that original message. The problem is that many of you guys will instantly contextualize that verse for yourself. Okay, okay. So abide in what I first heard Jesus was at the beginning. That's what I need to remain in. Can I be honest with you? I don't know if you should contextualize that verse. Some of you uh, have not been journeying here long, and some of you are brand new here tonight. And because of that, I have no idea what gospel you've heard. I have no idea what picture of Jesus has been portrayed to you. I have no idea what you have written down about what your thoughts are of Christ. So for me to stand behind my word here tonight and say, Church, remember what you have heard from the beginning is dangerous. Because I don't know what you've heard. But let me tell you something. What this church believes is that Jesus is the Savior and at the crux of everything. He is central. And so what you're going to hear at this church is Christ and Christ crucified. And because of that, we have relationship to the Father. He's the central, the, the central picture of everything we do here. So many of you are like, so what's, what's the litmus test? That's my science moment for the night, right? Litmus paper? It's awesome. Um, what's, the, what's my litmus test? 
The the first litmus test is the gospel that you heard, did it come from this? Uh, Some of you have heard some gospels from some really outstanding books that aren't the Bible. In fact, maybe some of those books even used uh, scripture references. They didn't like actually use the scripture, just the reference, you know. And it says in, you know, Hesitations 3, and you're like, what? Is that really a Bible book? I'm not sure, right? So your first litmus test is, did it come from the word? But let's pause. Can that be the only litmus test? There have been plenty of people that have taken the word of God and done a lot of things to it, amen? So your only litmus test cannot be the word of God. Your second litmus test, and there's others, but we'll focus on two for our purposes tonight. Your second litmus uh, litmus test is, is who is it about? Is the gospel about you? Is the gospel about how you respond to it? Is the gospel about how you can attain it? Is the gospel about how somehow you and G, or is it about Christ? That's your biggest litmus test. When people are describing the gospel, is Jesus really the center of it, or is it man? And so for some of you, right now, you've entered this church, and you've heard some gospel all of your life, that is completely you-focused. The God of the Scriptures, the Bible, not some self-help book, is all about himself and his own glory. And so when you come here in this church and we preach this Bible, what you're going to hear is a gospel that says he is about himself and he deserves the glory. So if that's the gospel you've heard, abide in it. You know what I'm saying? So, so if that's what you've heard from the beginning, rest in that. Jesus and Christ crucified. Remember that. Abide in that. May know that. And if not, then scratch, erase, and start anew. Right? The scripture goes on. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. (laughs) Listen, this verse blows my mind. You read it at first glance, and you're just like, oh, good. This is, this is a nice, neat Christian verse. Can I pause? 112 mentions of Mano in the New Testament. The first is this, John 6. Look at this. Unbelievable. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, Mano's in me, and I in him. Uh, if tonight's your first time here, don't leave, right? You're like, what in the, you know, what's, what's going on here, right? The very first mention in the New Testament, this word may know, is right here. Can I, can I explain what he's saying here? What he's saying here is whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, this isn't a literal contextualization of this verse. It's a, I as Christ must be everything, I must be all-consuming. I must really sit on the throne. And so for that to be reality, it must be everything that you are. He also said in another place, unless you hate your family, you have no part of me. Well, he doesn't want us to hate uh, hate our family. What he does want is for us to place him where he deserves to be, above everything. So apparently, in John's understanding of abide, do you understand how intense this word is? Do you understand that for us to abide in him, this is what he's talking about? Uh, It's like my little girl Avery. I've said many times before, my little girl Avery is literally like a mini Heidi. You know what I mean? 
Heidi's my wife. The same mannerisms, same everything. It's scary, you know. I, I feel like sometimes when I'm talking to Avery, I'm talking to Heidi. I'm like, are you serious? You know, I'm getting ready to have my little boy, uh, or our little boy, sorry. Uh, right? <laughs> She's doing the work, you know. Uh, Dawson. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how my little boy comes out, right? Potentially scary, right? I know all of you are interested, right? Like, what's it going to be like? Me too. So, um... <laughs> So uh, uh, last Friday, um, we tell Avery, so tomorrow you're going to go to Anna's house, Anna Stichter. She loves Anna and Abby, and they're in our lot family. They're just like a rat pack of girls. And, uh, and then we tell her, and, and then later, uh, last Friday, you're going to go to Gam's house. Well, Gam's is Heidi's parents, Gam's and Papa. Pause. Uh, we have some crazy names for our grandparents, don't, don't we? Like, I don't know what you call your I, I call them, like, Grandpa, Grandma, you know? Nowadays, it's like Mimas, you know, Sis, Sis, Kumba. It's like just crazy stuff, you know? <laughs> So, so, so we tell Avery, listen, listen, you know, we're, you're going to do this. So uh, we do our, our family time together at night, and then I take her up to bed. We told her, like, early afternoon, lay her in bed, tuck her in, give her a big kiss. Dad, are we going to Anna's now? You know, and I'm, no, honey, it's time for bed, you know. So I tucked her in, give her a kiss, go down. I'm a monitor, brilliant invention, the monitor. I'm listening to it, and all of a sudden I hear Avery, and she's like, hey, hey, hey. Uh, hey, mom, you know, and so, so Avery, or Heidi goes up, and, and after, like, after like 30 minutes, Avery's like, now can we go, you know, like, what's taking so long, you know, you, you said we're going to Anna's, you said, and so this little, she would not go to sleep. Kids, we can learn so much from, amen, they have such a one-track mind. Like, once they get something in their mind, it is their obsession. That's what Jesus is saying. I must become everything. I must be your obsession. That's what it looks like to abide. Now, the part that blows my mind is this. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Do you notice it? What's happening? There is two different kinds of abide. Do you guys see it in your word? Two different kinds. What's the different kinds? The first kind is what? It's him Abiding in what? Abiding in us. The second piece is us abiding in what? In him. Whoa. When I realized that in this passage this week, all of a sudden, like, I li- like you know, this is going to just unfold to be a beautiful piece of tonight. And we'll move on. Put that in the back of, your, back of your mind. We'll come back here in about seven and a half minutes. Verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. This seems somewhat random. It's like all of a sudden Jesus is talking about eternal life. No, no, no. Put it in context. What, what is he saying? If you abide, remember this message that you've heard from the beginning. It's almost like a statement and then a condition. And if you do, then what? Then you have the promised eternal life. A strange concept, eternal life, isn't it? Our minds cannot even begin to fathom it, can you? When you start to think about living forever, can you even just begin to to grasp that? It's strange because everything in our context has an end, right? There will be an end to this night, right? Your classes have an end time, thankfully, right? You're hoping that there will be an end to this message. I mean, everything has an end, but eternal life? Crazy. Put up the passage. I want to look at a couple passages that will help us explain eternal life. Jesus said, 
in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. A very interesting definition of eternal life, isn't it? Essentially what Jesus says is eternal life is about knowing God and knowing Christ. And you will spend an eternity knowing who's God and who's Christ. So I pause and ask, does that seem attractive to you? Does an eternity of abiding in the life of worshiping God in heaven seem attractive to you? Many of you have a misperceived notion of what heaven really is. We've talked about this before, right? Like you're going to get up there and Tiger and you are going to go play 18 and you're going to beat him. You know what I'm saying? But you're going to give each other a high five because there's no competition in heaven, right? Like you just, have, you just have this strange perception of what heaven is. Let me tell you something about eternal life. And look, I need to ask you this. Does the thought of worshiping God eternally excite you? And if it doesn't, what, what does that say? Jesus over and over and over talked about the kingdom now and the kingdom yet to come. You see, we experience glimpses of the kingdom now by living on this earth. That's why Jesus said, I came to give you life and life to the full. Are you with me, church? So we get glimpses, even in this context, in this setting, about what spending an eternity worshiping God looks like. So I ask, does that seem attractive to you? And if not, then you have some hard inner checking to be doing. Next passage. Romans 6 paints this beautiful picture of what the fruit of eternal life is. Look at this. For when you were slaves of sin, this is what you were all born into, by the way, depravity, slaves to your own sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Interesting. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What fruit was being produced by being a slave to sin? For the end of those things is death. Now what I love about this passage is when you look at Romans 6, everyone knows Romans 6.23. Question is, do you know Romans 6.22, which says this. But now, that you have seen, uh, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. I love that phrase. Anyone else? I am not a slave to my sin anymore. I am a slave of God, and some of you have this person, like, what do you mean by that? It means all that I am is his. Come on. Slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to, what's the word? Hooked on phonics, right? Like, sanctification? I know it's more than three syllables. Sanctification, yeah, right? The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and in its end, what? Eternal life. For What? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does the scripture say? The fruit you get leads to sanctification and in the end, eternal life. So the fruit of knowing Christ is that the spirit begins to work inside of you, preparing you for this eternal worship gathering. Again, I ask, does that seem attractive to you, friends? And when we gather here, it should be the thing that we absolutely crave. Verse 26. I write these things to you about those 
who are trying to deceive you. In the flow of this passage, this verse burdens me more than any of these. You remember the context. Last week, what we were looking at, Antichrist, and we said it brings out the crazies, remember? People all just all want to talk about Antichrist and Revelation. Antichrist this, Antichrist that. Well, the reality is what John is talking about is in Asia Minor, an area that's been infiltrated by Gnostic teaching, bad Christology, bad doctrine. What he's saying is, look, there are some people, and, he, and we read it last week, that have said they're, they're from us and they've left. And last week he implied what now he says. They are trying to deceive you. Here is the graph that I, that I made last week on the whiteboard. This is my attempt at art this week. It is, this, this maroon circle represents this separatist group that, that said that they were kind of with us, but they weren't. And they left. And now, and now, they're, now they're not of us at all. And what John is saying is they are trying to deceive you. They are on the offensive. How many guys have a chair that you love? Anybody? Can you take that down? That's scaring me, please. Does anybody have a chair that you love at home? Anybody? You guys know what a chair is? Big thing you sit in. It's like, a, what do I got to do tonight? You want me to get out the Etch-a-Sketch? You know what I'm saying? Come on, right? A chair. Lazy boy. Did, listen, did your dad have a chair that he loved? Yes, of course he did. Right? I want to be that dad, you know? My dad had a lazy boy. By definition, lazy boy, you know, the chair is made so that you just like, eventually I would look over and I wouldn't even see my dad. It would just be one big chair, you know, just because you like conform to the thing, you know. What I fear is that we have become so complacent, so just needy of self that we're just all like sitting around in a big Christian lazy boy. Just relaxed. Just on the defense. Just sitting and letting everything happen that will happen. The gospel, listen to this, listen to this, please. When Jesus took the Via Dolorosa... And when he walked with a cross on his back, and when the nails were put in his flesh, and when the blood dripped down, and when he breathed his last, from everyone else's perspective, that seemed like a defensive moment. It seemed like a reaction. It seemed like Jesus had no option. They were just going to kill him. And so his path to destruction was, was just there it was. The gospel is 100% offensive. The gospel is 100% the plan of God. The Via Dolorosa was planned before the beginning of any of you can even think about. The Via Dolorosa was exactly what Christ was supposed to be on. The nails placed exactly where they were supposed to be. The crown of thorns dug in exactly where it was supposed to be. The gospel is offensive. And so why are we sitting back 
When there are those around us that are trying to deceive us. Look, I know that many of you with this last week, this Jesus journey, sat back in your lazy boy, comfortable, complacent seat. When if there's anything that we should be doing, it's learning more about who Christ is. How in the world are we supposed to battle those who are trying to deceive us if we don't even know our Savior? So we sit and we get comfortable instead of understanding Jesus has always been the pro-actor. Not sure if that's a word, but work with me, right? He's always been the orchestrator. So the moment you and I start believing that the Bible isn't reactionary is the moment when you and I will get a better picture of what the gospel is. So I sit back and I read that verse that said, look, John, from a grandpa's perspective, there are those that are trying to deceive you. Remain in him. Remain in him. And this next verse, oh, oh, it's verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Some of you are like, I've been waiting for this verse all my life. You know what I'm saying? Here it is. No one should teach me, you know? Some of you are like, like this, this, no, you haven't written anything down in your notes, but this verse, you're like, exclamation point, highlighter in eight different colors, you know? Quick thought for you. A John, he's writing the letter, so I'm pretty sure if he meant that no one should teach you, he wouldn't have wrote the letter. You see what I'm saying? Right? Like he's writing to teach Asia Minor, right, about the things of Christ. So if he means no one should teach you really, then I'm pretty sure he, you, we, we wouldn't be reading this right now, right? So he says, you have received the anointing, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. The context from the verse before is that there are people that are trying to deceive you. But you have what? What's the A word there? The anointing. What was the anointing? We talked about it last week. It was God, this ancient ritual of God separating people for his work and his service. And with the Pentecost came the anointing of the Spirit that he seals believers at the point of justification. The anointing isn't something you receive, you know, at random times. At the moment that Christ saves you is the moment that you're sealed with the Spirit and the moment that you're justified. And what he's saying is, look, you have the anointing. So why are you getting confused? You have inside of you what John 16 says is the thing that guides you into all truth, the Holy Spirit. So why, oh why, are you even beginning to get deceived. This gets better. Look at this. Uh, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, now some of you are like, you, now you just highlighted that part, right? You're like, oh, sweet, right? But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. How does the anointing teach us about everything? This is the Bible. Right, like, thanks. And, and John wrote at the beginning of his gospel that the word became what? Became flesh. Now we see in another part of scripture that the word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. So when I imagine the word 
Everything in this Bible is about the heroic nature of Jesus, the plan of redemption of God for Jesus to be sent and to be our redeemer. And then that word became flesh. And then scripture says that that word is living and active. If we have this at our access, and then we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit inside, which reveals all truth, all of a sudden we see the greatest offensive opportunity that we will ever have. The beauty of the combination of the Word of God and the Spirit of God working inside of you to guide. Each so essential. Not just the Word and not just the Spirit, which many of you have seen groups of people overcompensate before at different times. But when those two things work in unison, the beauty So what does it say, this Jesus journey? Is it just about answering questions? Oh no, Christian, it's about you learning the book that you claim to be living and active. And so then as the Spirit reveals the truth that's in it, guess what's going to be on your lips? Because Scripture says that we speak out of the overflow of our heart. And so as the Spirit stirs, then the Word comes out and we see this beautiful mesh against people who would try to deceive and say the gospel isn't about Christ. And there better be nothing, Christian, that makes you more livid, in a good sense, than someone who tries to say that the gospel is about anything but Jesus. That should cause an angst in you, and if it doesn't, I would question your understanding of what the gospel really is. Now, in this passage... In this beautiful passage, we see an amazing union. Put up this graph for me. All of a sudden, when I look back and I see all this rhetoric about abiding in him and him abiding in us and my confused mind about how to really describe relationship with God, it was in this verse last Friday that all of a sudden I was like, relationship with God is the simultaneous union of him abiding in us and us abiding in him. That is relationship with God. This abiding that happens of him in us and this abiding that happens of us in him. Now, we're going to talk about the second piece here in in a couple minutes. But the first piece is what we're talking about right now. Him abiding in us is his spirit thrust in you, remaining in you. That's why we believe here at Matthias, if saved, always saved. Not once saved, always saved. Christians are sealed with the spirit of God. So we can be assured of the grace that we have in Christ We've talked about this before. We don't have to daily wake up and say, oh, God, where is my standing with you today? No, I know it because I'm reading the word and the spirit is revealing the truth. Church, are you with me tonight? So when we look at this and we begin to understand relationship with God, the first piece is him abiding in us. Now, I pause any time I put you or us or we on the screen. Understand that him abiding in us is all his work. Okay? We don't like, we don't all of a sudden create some perfect scenario and then God's like, boom. 
It's God's saving plan. It's God's saving work. But, Christian, abiding in you. Are you with me? This verse goes on. Verse 28 says this. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have, what's the word? Confidence and not shrink from him, uh, not shrink from, uh, not shrink from him in shame at his coming. In other words, because he abides in you, remain in him so that you don't shrink and cower. How many of you guys have ever been in middle school before? Funny age, isn't it? I, okay. It was for me. My story. Junior high was funny. Uh, in junior high is when, like, the tests, like, are, like, legit. You know what I mean? It's like in fifth grade. Come on. Two plus two. Seriously. You know what I mean? Of course it's six. You know what I mean? You know, but, but eventually, eventually the tests get legit. Now, and I'm sure you've experienced a scenario. So your parents know that big geography test is coming. You know, and so you're studying, you're working for it, you know, and they're excited. Hey, your test is tomorrow, right? And you're like, yeah, you know, you're looking at Iowa and the rivers, you know, whatever geography is. I'm not even really sure, you know. And then, listen, and then the day of the test comes, and I mean, you know inside you rocked it. You know what I mean? I mean, you just know you killed it. So you come home and your parents are like, so how'd it go today? I'm not sure. We'll see, you know, pretty good. As long as, every, you know, as long as things worked well. You go back the next day, 98. 100% that, that didn't work there. 98% in your test. 100% of you when you go home is like you can't wait for your parents to get home. You know what I'm saying? Because when they get home, they walk in the door, and you're standing at the door. You know? It's like, so, how the test? 98%, Mom. You know? Oh, really, son? That's such a, wow, that's such a brilliant, like, way to go. Yeah, I know. I mean, don't you think that deserves some goodies of some kind? You know what I mean? Let's hook this up. Flip the scenario. Take the test. I mean, you, you just know you bombed it. It was not good. They asked about the Mississippi, you know, and Lewis and Clark or something, geographical, you know. And so you go home. And, and your parents, and you're not too worried yet because you haven't seen the test scores. And you guys know because you've been there. Your parents are like, so how'd it go? Well, you know, I think pretty good as long as the teacher grades it right. Because there was a couple of those questions, you know, where they, they screwed, you know, this, this, the wording was weird. So as long as she gets what I'm trying to say, I mean, you know, B plus for sure, you know. You know, because you know, you're laughing because you've done it. I, I did it many a time. So you get your test score, 65. You're like, what? You go up to your teacher, you know, you're trying to figure it out. You go home. You hear the garage door open, and, and you instantly, like, I have to go to the bathroom. Just because it's your cave, you know? And, 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 then, and then you move on, and, like, you hear your, the parents come downstairs, and so then you're, like, skirting the room. And then you go outside, and you're going to try to butter them up, so you, like, sweep the garage out, you know? But that moment of having to say 65, like, you don't want that moment. Because there is like so much, you know, you're, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to speak, I, I just don't want to do it. Isn't it amazing that through the gospel of Christ, we can stand assured with no shame and it has nothing to do with us? 
Listen, no report card could ever be good enough. No test score could ever come back well enough for Christ to say, that's my child. Because it was all on his merit. It was all on what he did. It was all on his actions. And so church, for those of you guys that are still just cringing in shame, listen, be assured that by abiding in him and him abiding in us, we can stand before the throne of God unashamed. Not because of who we are, anything that we've done, but 100% because of who he is. And verse 29, amazing. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So much here in this last verse. Stay with me. If we know that he is righteous, well, what is righteousness? Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, no one is what? No one is righteous. Not even one scripture says. So we don't have righteousness at the beginning. So how do we get righteousness? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, the concept of righteous is, is, is being made right, or, or in a sense, holy. Now, n- next verse, look at this. This explains it even to a different extent. Uh, this is uh, John chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So righteousness is imputed on us at the moment of justification as God begins to sanctify us and make us more like him so that we can stand before him without shame. Now, Scripture says that's all because you've been born of him. Have you guys ever heard of Nicodemus? Nicodemus struggled with this concept of being born again. He's like, so how does that work? Like you say, I need to be born again. Do you, you know, like do I go back in there, you know? Like what, what happens? What, ha- like, what, what is it? What does the scripture say? We uh, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. To be born of God when a parent has a child. That child often comes out looking like the parents or having the same mannerisms as the parents. Why? Because of a scientific thing called DNA, right? That is given to the children. You are not born naturally of God. But when Christ saves you through his son, he makes you righteous and Big word, regenerates you. The scripture says the old has gone and the new has come. That's what it means to be born of God. Now you have the seal, the the Holy Spirit of God in you. Now God is sanctifying you. And one day you'll stand before the throne and, and Jesus will say, righteous because of me. And that beauty of what it means to be born of him is what shows us the second part of this graph. Put up, Put back up the graph. 
No, not that part. Our relationship with God is a simultaneous union of him abiding in us and us abiding in him. When I was thinking through this and looking at the passage, it can get really us-focused there if we're not careful. Us abiding in him. What does that look like? Go back to that uh, scripture that you were just at. Here's what Jesus says about it. No, next, next, next scripture. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So us abiding in him is the process of us being born of God, is the process of us being sanctified by God, and our abiding to him is, is us sitting in that huge circle of love and grace that makes us acceptable to the Father. That's that relational piece. Still has nothing to do with you. Still is all about his ability to make us righteous before God. Relationship. Now, some people will say, all right, so now, now, you, got the, now you got the relational graph. How's your relationship with, with, with God going? Listen. Christians have come up with a tremendous amount of excuses that we have heard other people say that have nothing to do with Scripture. Christians, when asked, how is your relationship with God going, have come up with a whole bunch of what sounds like theological jargon to mask it, to give us an excuse. Let me give you an example. Christians, and you have said it probably, and I have said it, People say, well, well, how's your relationship with God going? You know, him abiding in you and you abiding in him. How's that working? Well, I'm just in a dry season right now. Dry, dry season, you have the spirit of God inside of you. The anointing of the Holy Spirit inside of you. What do you mean dry, like dry season? Look in your Bible, won't, won't find that phrase. Listen, we've heard other Christians say it, and so then it, we feel like then somehow that gives us the right, because it sounds somewhat theological, to then use that. Well, I'm just in a dry season. When I step back and I look at that graph of our relationship with God, and I now understand it to be him abiding in me through the Spirit of God and me abiding in him by, me, by him making me righteous, now I understand when, when, when I feel like I'm in a dry season, and it's often based on our feelings, isn't it? When I sense I'm in a dry season, instead of masking it with laziness and pride, I just raise my hand and when someone asks me, say, you know what? I haven't been reading the word, period. You ask how I'm doing, I haven't been reading my word. There it is. Some theological Christians call it dry season. The real of it is I'm just not in the word. And so what does that do? Now all of a sudden, I sit back and I understand that that reveals my need for the gospel. And no one's going to coddle me. And no one's going to say, oh, well, well, you know, maybe you should. No. In that moment, with everything laid bare, here's where I am. Guess what it comes back to you? You need more Jesus. The Spirit abiding in you, you yielding to the Spirit. And you're just being basked in the great grace and mercy of God, abiding in his love.
I'm just, you know, another excuse Christians always use. You know, I'm just, I'm just not hearing anything. The problem is, is it goes against the promises of the Scripture. The promise is he guides you into all truth. You noticed that when Jesus said that, it didn't say, accept this, accept this, accept this, accept this. It was he guides you in all truth. So now all of a sudden, hey, I'm just not hearing really well. The real of it is my life is chaos. I'm struggling with pornography, and all of a sudden, I just, I just when I read the word, it, just, it feels like it's just masked by sin. Yeah, it is. You need Jesus. And now all of a sudden we have this common language to talk about our relationship with God. When people ask, how's your relationship with God going? We evaluate the two things. Am I yielding to the Spirit of God in my life? And am I resting in His ability to make me righteous? That's relationship. It's not lovey-touchy all the time. You won't feel it all the time. And that's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? Because there's no other relationship in our world that we define with the uniqueness of him implanting the spirit and him making me righteous because of his sacrifice. What other relationship do you describe that way? So I ask you, how is your relationship with God? instant reaction is, oh yeah, Christian hearsay. I heard that once. That makes it sound better than it is. Listen, church. Reveal your depravity. The Spirit of God inside of you, but Paul said things like, why do I do what I don't want to do when I don't want to do it? And a whole bunch of other dudes, remember? That's a legitimate issue. That's not Christian hearsay. That's the Apostle Paul saying, why is there this inner battle of spirit and physical? So say that. How's your relationship with God going? You know what? I just feel like I'm not really yielding to the Spirit, but I'm really yielding to my flesh a whole lot. Okay, you need Jesus, right? Yes, let's pray right now. Come on. And then he, by his loving grace, grabs us and continues to sanctify us by his Holy Spirit. I ask again, how's your relationship with God? You struggling with some sin? Feel like when you read the Bible, there's just nothing. Feel like your prayer time is lacking. You feel like you're being 100% wasteful with your money and resources. Let me tell you the beauty of the answer is that, yes, you too, Christian, just need more and more consuming grace of Christ. Hey, Chris, can you just turn all the lights off for me, man? That'd be awesome. We don't normally do this. And here's what I want to ask. Right now, you're just like, you know what? I'm just tired of creating excuses for myself. I'm just tired of masking my pride and my laziness. I'm just, I'm just ready for God to do something miraculous in my life. If that's you right now, you're just like, you know what, I need, I need prayer. This isn't an altar call. This is just a, hey, I, I'm, I'm being vulnerable right now, and I need some prayer. 
If that's you right now, I'm just going to ask you to stand. No, head bowed, eyes closed. If that's you right now, if you're saying, you know what, I just need, I just need Christ to just rock my life. I need more of him. I'm just going to ask you to stand. You're struggling. You've been blaming things on a lot of different things. Is that you? Just stand. Yeah. The beauty is, for all those of you that are standing, is that the answer is the same for all of you. Amen? I don't have to draw an equation. I don't have to create some cute gimmick. The answer is the same for all of you. Be consumed with the gospel. So if you're around one of these people right now that are standing, maybe grab a hand, put a hand on a shoulder, and we're just going to spend a couple minutes right now just praying for them and asking God to do a mighty, mighty work in their life. Come on. Let's out loud together just pray for these people right now. Come on. So God, I thank you for the victory that I believe can happen in this room right now. I thank you for the relationship that you allow us to have with you, the simultaneous union of you abiding in us and us abiding in you and it being by all your power. God, I pray for these individuals right now who are struggling, who have just tried to mask their relationship with you with a bunch of Christian hearsay excuses. God, will you remind them of the promises of your word? Will you remind them of all the things that you have communicated throughout the ages of how you are holy, of how you are great? God, will you give these people standing now an assuredness that your grace is enough for them? I pray, God, that you give them courage to even further communicate this with a friend or someone that they can trust. That can, they can just continue this journey of prayer together. We believe, God, that you're moving and that you're working and that you can do an amazing thing here. Let's stand together and respond in worship.